0: Welcome to the Pro-Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by John Ralston, who virtually anyone who is even a casual follower of politics will know as the go-to journalist, analyst, and expert on all things Nevada politics. John has been a working journalist in Las Vegas since the mid-80s, covering news, writing columns, hosting his own television program, and a regular presence on national cable news whenever something is going on in Nevada. And over the past few years, John has started his own independent news outlet, the Nevada Independent. John has great stories and insights both about politics and as a trailblazer in the evolving world of political journalism. John Ralston,
1: tell me how you grew up. Well, I uh, was born in Morristown, New Jersey, which is right outside New York City. Uh, my dad uh, worked at, at, at Bell Labs and then at a small university. But when I was really young, about five, we moved to Buffalo, New York, uh, which is re- where I really uh, grew up. Uh, and, and, and spent the rest of my youth. And my dad was a professor at the University of Buffalo and I had, grew up with three siblings and kind of a uh, classic suburban uh, middle-class environment uh, in, in a very nice uh, suburb of Buffalo.
0: You spent the last several decades of your life being very focused on everything political. Did you grow up in a political family?
1: I guess it depends how you define that. My dad was certainly very politically active, both on campus as the classic, you know, professors usually are rabble rousers, writing these nasty grams to the administration on uh, everything that was wrong. But he was also the classic liberal college professor. And he was a brilliant guy. And he got involved in all kinds of causes, uh, including to help uh, people in Russia and, and Soviet Union at the time. But he also was very you know, passionate about American politics. I, I don't remember for sure, Zach, but I'm pretty sure we had a McGovern sign uh, in our yard. We may have even had a Eugene McCarthy uh, sign. Uh, but my dad um, was very liberal. And, and my mom wasn't that politically aware. And I don't think as kids, we were that politically aware. I mean, we had to listen to my dad's rants, of course. Uh, I never thought that I would go into covering politics or have anything to do with politics just wasn't something I was uh, interested in as a kid. I was interested in sports and writing, and that's where I thought my career would go. And I didn't know much about politics at all for quite some time, I have to tell you. Even in college, uh, Zach, I, I went undergrad to Cornell and, and grad school at Michigan. I was not that politically aware, I, I, I would say. I mean, I, I was a good student. I read of history. I, my dad read the New York Times every day. Uh, and so I would occasionally pick it up and, and and read some stories in it. But mostly I went to the sports page where I became a a devotee of maybe the greatest sports writer of all time, Red Smith, uh, who was just brilliant. And I loved his writing style. And I wanted to be like Red Smith. I wanted to be a sports writer. And I was much more obsessed with sports uh, than I was with politics, at least growing up.
0: Where does your career veer from wanting to be the next Red Smith to becoming what we know is the current John Ralston uh, in terms of uh, a much more political bent?
1: I went to Michigan thinking for grad school in journalism, which is a really good journalism school, but thinking I was going to be a sports writer. And I I just kind of fell in love with news there. It was a great program in terms of you you were able to travel to other papers around the state. And uh, we went to a couple in Ohio, I think, too, uh, and worked there for a day. And I just fell in love with covering news. And then I had a great internship. I'll date myself here in 1982, the summer of 82 at the Sacramento Bee, which at the time was a really great newspaper run by a guy named Frank McCullough, who was a legend uh, in newspapering. And I just uh, fell in love with news and I, and I I really decided that's the direction I wanted to go. But I remember that internship in Sacramento. I had some great mentors there at the Bee. And I think maybe it was that I considered, and this is not necessarily true by the way, that sports was more frivolous or trivial than covering actual news. And so I I consider myself more of a serious person perhaps. That's somewhat speculating, but um, I I never lost my interest in sports and I'm still a huge sports fan. After the first semester at Michigan and then that internship, I was was definitely on a, a career track towards news, not politics by the way, I still didn't have much interest in politics, but I was going to cover news.
0: In the mid '80s, you find yourself in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, in was it was that your first uh, you know real job in journalism?
1: Well, what happened is um, uh, I, I had. A health issue towards the end of the, of, of the master's program in Michigan. I actually ended up having to have a kidney transplant, which uh, and I, I got from my brother. Uh, and thank goodness, 37 plus years later, I'm going strong. Uh, my brother was an identical match for me, but it slowed me down. And so I couldn't look for a job uh, right afterwards. And so I freelanced for a lot of papers in the Michigan area. And then I started applying Uh, for jobs. And I do remember fairly vividly applying for for a job at the Oakland Tribune in Michigan, Oakland, Michigan. And I remember uh, that the editor there started asking me some questions about politics. And in fact, she asked me who Michigan's two U.S. senators were. And I'll show you how disconnected I was, and this will—it's kind of funny now, knowing what I do now. I, I could only name Carl Levin, and I couldn't think of who the other one was. And I figured that cost me the job, although I—I'm I, I, not sure of that. But I—I I didn't get that job. I actually got offered an interview at a place called Riverton, Wyoming, and. Uh, uh, as soon as I arrived in Riverton, Wyoming, I knew that that was not a place I wanted to live. And I essentially uh, uh, made sure that I didn't get the job. In fact, the way I remember it is they 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 thought that it went so poorly as they made me pay for the flight home as opposed to paying for it. But then I, uh, I actually uh, got offered uh, uh, an interview at, at the Las Vegas Review-Journal in 1984 as a night cop reporter. All I knew was Las Vegas. I played poker in college and we had gone on a trip to Vegas. All I knew about was Vegas is all the cliches. There's no real city there. People live in the hotels. And so I went there and I did the interview and, I, and, and uh, they offered me the job almost right away, which during the interview, they offered me the job, which m- made me conclude that either I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread or no one's taken this job and they're desperate to get somebody. And I soon found out it was the latter, but I called Frank McCullough who I mentioned was uh, the head of the Sacramento Bee at the time and had worked in, in Nevada. And he said, no better way to cut your teeth in journalism than, than uh, covering night cops in Vegas. Take the job. You don't have to stay there forever. And, and Zach, I didn't think I'd be in Vegas forever. I thought I'd be here two years. I was an East Coast guy, as I mentioned. You know, The New York Times was the gold standard. I My career goal was to get to the New York Times. And so I would be in Vegas for a year or two, uh, but there's no way uh, that, that, that I would stay in the place that I've now been for 37 years.
0: Getting your feet wet in a new city, probably especially Las Vegas, maybe more so than some other places, as a police reporter, as a night police reporter, really must be a good way to get a feel for the rhythm of the city. Talk a little bit about about those days.
1: Yeah, it really wasn't. And, and, and I always like to think back on that, Zach, thinking that nothing could have prepared me better to deal with, deal with politicians than having to deal with cops, especially cops on the night beat who did not want to necessarily cooperate with the media and were very difficult. And so I not only learned the contours of the city, but I learned how to get information from people. and And, and it is difficult to extract information from police at the scene of a crime or even just at, at, at the what was known as the Metro Plaza desk at the time where I had to go down and there was this gruff old former railroad cop. And I still remember his name all these years later, Larry Wallace, who treated me just absolutely like garbage until one night I just got back in his face. And from then on, uh, he loved me and we became uh, almost friends uh, and, and he helped me a lot. Um, so I learned a lot about journalism, a lot about Las Vegas and a lot about how to deal uh, with, with with people on the night cop beat. And I'll, I'll forever thank Frank McCullough for saying it was the best way to cut my teeth in journalism because I, I, I really learned a lot from doing that.
0: What is the, the, the short version of going from there being the, the night court reporter, the night police reporter, to where you find yourself as one of and, and eventually the, the primary, the, the signature voice for Nevada politics?
1: My beat after leaving the night copy was the Clark County Commission, which most people listening to this don't know, but is by far the most powerful local government body in, in the state. Uh, you know this, Zach. The uh, county commission oversees the strip. The strip is not actually in the city of Las Vegas, it's on in unincorporated Clark County. Covering the Clark County Commission with all the issues that they deal with, both with the Strip and all kinds of planning and zoning and and, uh, uh, everything else, that's when I fell in love with politics. And I saw what drove issues, how politicians, good and bad, operated, how relationships needed to be forged, how personalities often drove things more than politics or policy. Uh, and, and I just learned and I just fell in love with that. And I wanted to become the political reporter. And it took me a while. Uh, there, there were people who were had more seniority than I did, but I eventually became the political reporter in 1986 for the Review Journal at a very propitious time. It was Harry Reid's first run for the U.S. Senate, which was a great race. And President Reagan came to the state three times in the last uh, month to try to save it for him. And I met Paul Laxalt and I was just intoxicated I, I I started thinking, though, that that it was time to leave Vegas, to be honest with you. But I thought about leaving Vegas. I thought I had done a lot. I had covered a U.S. Senate race. I was thinking about leaving. And I started applying uh, to some uh, fairly major newspapers, including uh, major newspapers in California, like the San Francisco papers, the Mercury News, San Diego papers. Uh, By the way, none of them bit. But as I was applying, I applied to some big papers back east, too. They knew I was looking. And so they offered me a column, and I was 29 years old. And who gets a political column three times a week at 29? I said I I couldn't turn it down. And the rest is kind of history. I started getting asked to be on TV to do commentary, and then I eventually got asked to do a TV show that was started by the rival newspaper. And so I went and worked for that company. And then I developed my own brand essentially by, by by that TV show and by doing my own political newsletter uh, every other week, uh, which eventually went online and became daily. Uh, And uh, then, uh, you know, I went through several iterations of the TV show, uh, which is a very uh, euphemistic way of saying I I got fired from a few of those TV gigs for a variety of reasons. We can talk about that if you want. It it, it was eye opening into that business, by the way. And then I just decided a little more than four years ago that uh, after my last TV gig ended that I really wanted to, as a capstone of my career, start a new uh, uh, independent news organization And I went and hired the three best young reporters in the state. And uh, here we are today with 14 full-time employees going strong more than four years later. Zach, this is by far the most satisfying, best thing I've ever done. And it's ironic because probably the one that has the least to do with me and more with just these uh, uh, fantastic reporters, some of whom I think you know uh, that I've hired.
0: Yeah, well, I want to dig into a lot of that. But you say you, you really got the bug for, for politics, for Nevada politics in the, in the mid-80s, you know, 85, 86, 87. Talk a bit about the Nevada political scene in the mid-80s.
1: Well, you're, you're taxing my adult memory a little bit, but I'll tell you what I remember. One, one thing that is clear, was clear as a bell to me is that Nevada was seen as a Republican state back then. Um, uh, even even though there's the cliche of Sin City and all the rest of it, we had more churches per capita. The Mormon influence was very strong in Nevada and uh, Republican presidential candidates generally won the state. The only exceptions we have to get past the mid 80s was Bill Clinton. And the only reason he won Nevada uh, before recent years was because of uh, Ross Perot being on the ballot or he wouldn't have won uh, Nevada. So it was a Republican state um, Paul Laxalt was the legendary senator who decided to step down, and he anointed his successor, and Harry Reid was, was in his second term as Congress and was by no means seen as the favorite in, in that race. And uh, Harry Reid's slogan uh, in that race, Zach, was independent like Nevada. He tried to run as someone who was not beholden to any partisan interests, and he, and that was how Nevada... was a that was a resonant slogan for Nevada at the time it wasn't the kind of polarized state or or country that we see uh now and and so and, and he used issues like the environment which was a big deal here nuclear waste and the potential for a nuclear waste dump was just coming into view uh then and so um no one even talked about things that are talked about now including the hispanic vote which was essentially non-existent in the mid 80s there was there was the mormon vote there was there was mobilizing the african american vote if you were a democrat because they were still clustered essentially in one area of las vegas Um, But the dynamic was completely different. And by the way, Las Vegas was not nearly as large a city as as it was then, but it was still, you had to win Las Vegas, Clark County, uh, and Harry Reid, uh, in most of his races, only won Clark County uh, to become a U.S. senator, except in a couple races where uh, uh, he didn't really have opponents.
0: Well, what do outside observers need to understand about the role of the gaming industry in Nevada politics?
1: It's changed a little bit, but certainly when I began, and I eventually wrote a book about about the gaming industry's influence on politics called The Anointed One, based on what I had said in a variety of columns, was the their gaming's ability to anoint candidates for office. Kenny, Kenny, they,
0: Kenny, Kenny Gwynn being the, the titular anointed one, right?
1: That's right, Kenny Gwynn who ran for governor and was essentially, uh, had never had never held public office before, but two years plus out decided to say he was going to run and he was a, a, a well-known community figure in the gaming industry anointed him as they had anointed candidates before. And if the gaming industry anoints you, this may not be as much true anymore, but it's still pretty true. Uh, they are such a dominant industry in Nevada. I mean, it's the gaming industry and everybody else. You can say construction development uh, has some influence. You can say that things connected to real estate have an influence. You can even say mining has an influence, but it's dwarfed by the gaming industry. And the gaming industry back then, by the way, Zach was much more united and more monolithic in terms of who would supported. That changed through the years with corporate acquisitions and expansion but it's still, uh, they operated through the, what is called the Nevada Resort Association, their lobbying arm, and they, they are still by far the most powerful industry. And uh, generally, they get what they want.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, Vegas embraces its mafia tradition on a lot of respects. There's the Mob Museum downtown, I believe. You get to Vegas in the mid 80s, you know, were there vestiges uh, that you saw, or that you're aware of, of the mob heydays uh, uh, that we think of from some of the old movies
1: yeah, I mean, see any of it. I, I guess the answer to that question is no. I mean, I didn't run into Tony Spilatro, the character that Joe Pesci played in Casino in, in a bar or anything like that. But there was a columnist when I first got here by the name of Ned Day who kind of chronicled uh, the mob. Uh, and And he still wrote about some things that happened in his car. Uh, Got got torched, presumably uh, by the mob. Uh, But vestiges is the right word, Zach. I I mean, their heyday was in the sixties and seventies. And by the time I got here, uh, it 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 was pretty much gone, and except in very small pockets. Uh, And and so it wasn't really a factor anymore.
0: Let's move from the sixties and seventies to today. Uh, You know, certainly you're the the foremost expert uh, in everything Nevada politics. Can you give the the Cliff Notes version of how you look at Nevada politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, the simple way to explain it is that Nevada is essentially three different states. It's, it's Las Vegas and Clark County, which has two-thirds or so of the population. There's Reno, Washoe County, uh, which which uh, is the only other urban area. And then there are 15 other rural counties, and they're all quite different. Um, uh, and the math of the state generally, as you know, is that if a Democrat Uh, can win Clark County by double digits, it's very difficult for a Republican to win statewide. You can drive up the rural county vote as much as you you want, but there's just not going to be enough votes out there. All those rural counties are quite red, some of them deeply red, some of them lighter uh, red. But the real change since I started covering politics is in Washoe County, which was a reliably red county for many, many cycles. In fact, uh, uh, Harry Reid uh, did some remarkable strategic moves to minimize his losses in Washoe County in the early days. And he would not still be a U.S. Senator if he hadn't done so against John Ensign in 1998 when he only ended up winning by 400 votes, but ended up losing Washoe County by such a small margin and won Clark County enough. So the math is for Democrats, you've got to win uh, Clark County generally by about ten points, and then you can feel safe unless something really weird happens. But what's happened in Washoe County, <clears throat> and I like to say this, it's not your grandfather's Washoe County anymore. And certainly Adam Laxalt found that out uh, against Steve Sisolak when he ran, because Sisolak ran very strongly in uh, Washoe County, as have Democrats uh, for the last three or four cycles or so. Uh, Zach and it that. Demographics there have changed because of so many people moving in from California and becoming kind of a tech hub and becoming more liberal. The registration now is basically even in in Washoe County. And so that's changed. Republicans can't count on that extra bump from Washoe County that they once did. So, in some sense, Clark County really becomes even more dominant uh, in in, in that way. Now, Joe Biden, uh, I may have the numbers wrong, I don't have them in front of me, I don't think quite got the 10 points in Clark County. I think he won by about nine points. Uh, but he won Washoe County uh, by enough that even though though he got killed in rural Nevada, he still won the state by two and a half. Uh, the math seems to look doable for Republicans every cycle. But it's very difficult to get beyond beyond what I come to call the Clark County firewall if it can be built up to a big enough lead for the Democrats.
0: A big piece of the Clark County Firewall, you know, sometimes called the Reed Machine. Should outsiders understand about the Reed Machine? What is hype? What is reality?
1: So let me just give you a little bit of history. I'll try not to go into too much uh, detail here, but I mentioned the race in 1998 between Harry Reed and John Ensign. That was a near-death experience for Reed. Uh, he almost lost it against a guy he had very little respect for. Uh, and and uh, he knew, uh, he he in fact said, uh, after that race uh, uh, in, in a conversation with me that he knew he had to change the way things operated. So he he started to think more about it and he brought in some operatives um, uh, who were not Nevada operatives, including someone named Rebecca Lamb, uh, who was a field operative essentially in Missouri to, to rebuild the state party and build it into the organization that, that it is today. Um, uh, and that began in, in the early 2000s what Rebecca Lamb has done with that with that state party is nothing short of remarkable. It's not just her, but she's the brains behind it and she brought in these very, very smart young operatives who focused on voter registration, voter ID, and, and the Republicans essentially have had no answer for it. And so uh, the Reed machine essentially changed the way campaigns are run. It changed the, the voter registration dynamic. And then uh, the, the, the Reed, who has shown incredible foresight in some of these things with the help of Rebecca Lamb and others, uh, came up with the idea uh, a few years after Rebecca Lamb got here of making Nevada an early state in the presidential uh, nominating process. And he went to the DNC at the end of 2006, I believe it was, with Lamb and others, including labor leaders. And, got, and and because Reed was such a powerful figure at the time in Democratic leadership, was able to get that on, got an early caucus. They registered in the first caucus here, I believe, 30,000 people on on caucus day, 30,000 new Democrats, which in a small state like Nevada, uh, Zach, is not insignificant. And then uh, Reed made a a, a fantastical prediction before the caucus, they would have 100,000 people turn out for the caucus. Now a few thousand people had turned out in the past. I mocked him for this, by the way, and a great little Inside Nevada story. I was on uh, the CBS affiliate doing commentary the night of the caucus and Reed actually called in to get me to admit that I had been wrong and that and he was right. The, 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 he was quite gleeful about that, but that just turbocharged everything. And if you want to understand the Reed machine and Harry Reid, he did that as much for 2008, which, by the way, then Barack Obama won the state partly because of what happened on that caucus day, But Reed was looking ahead to 2010 and his very difficult uh, re-election. And because of the Reed machine that he had built, uh, they managed to run. I still regret not writing a book about that race, uh, Zach, because a, a guy with a near 50% disapproval rating ended up winning by six points. People think of that race as having been close. As you know, six points is not that close a race. It was decisive. And, and the way that they did that because of how they picked their opponent and organized and got the voter registration numbers up uh, uh, is a model for the country, I think, and others have used it maybe uh, not quite as successfully. But that machine uh, was intact even after Reid decided to retire uh, after 2016. And Rebecca Lamb is still around and she's cycled through some other young operatives. One of those operatives uh, has become the political director of the Democratic National Committee, and uh, now that's how good she is. And so, they've just brought in really, really good, smart uh, organizers. And Rebecca and I have had this con- have had this conversation many times, Zach. And you get this as an operative too. Politics is about a lot of things. It's about candidates. It's about issues. It's it's about luck to some extent. But really, when it comes down to it, it's math. And the math that we have talked about in building up that Clark County firewall, which is what what the, the Reed machine has been expert in doing because early voting was instituted, two weeks of it. And the Democrats have been able to build up such a lead during early voting. Two-thirds of the people vote early in this state now. Last cycle, of course, was an anomaly because of the pandemic and all mail. It's almost impossible for a Republican to win. After all those string of Republican presidential candidates winning there, Obama won here twice, Clinton won here, and Biden won here. So four straight after so many years of Republican domination, that's attributable to one thing, really. And that's what we've been talking about.
0: Well, where does the Culinary Union fit into this?
1: Well, uh, the Culinary Union is part and parcel of all of this for two reasons. First of all, it's by far the largest union. It has fifty to 60,000 uh, members and and if you can turn that out as part of your turnout machine, uh, that's a huge number of, of and, votes.
0: And, have- and say just and so the, the the actual members of the culinary union, many of them are the folks that are employees of the the big casinos. And just 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 give a little bit of context about who actually comprises the culinary union. That's
1: correct. They're, 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 it's called it's called the culinary union for, but it's culinary and bartenders union. And and they essentially are working in the casino industry. In fact, there was a lot of controversy about in in when when Harry Reid won that race in 2010 about the culinary industry, bringing buses to all the casinos and, and busing its its workers down to the polls and Republicans filed lawsuits over that and and made all kinds of allegations uh, uh, about that. But the culinary union is not only able to turn out its voters, but it developed uh, a 15, 20 years ago, a fairly sophisticated political operation of its own in registering its voters and targeting uh, certain uh, races and, and, uh, as the, the second thing is as the hispanic vote has become more important here the culinary union is more than half hispanic and so that they are the hispanic vote turnout machine which has been critical not just for presidential candidates uh here, uh as you know, winning it two, three to one. But in, in statewide races for uh important offices like US Senate and Governor, the Hispanic vote has been very close to decisive in some of those races. And so it, it essentially has worked hand in glove with the Reed machine in ma- in many of those races. And Reed recognized starting in 2008-2010, the importance of the Hispanic vote and organizing the Hispanic vote, mostly through uh, the Culinary Union, which continues to be a, a huge force in Nevada politics.
0: Sitting here in the early part of 2021, what are your expectations of how 2022 is going to shape up? Nevada having a potentially very competitive U.S. Senate and gubernatorial elections in 2022?
1: Listen, I think it's very uncertain out there. Um, I think Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, who is the U.S. senator, uh, didn't win by a lot when when she first ran. Uh, She is the favorite in that race uh, because Republicans just don't have a candidate. Um, And and the same is true of Steve Sisolak as governor. His numbers have fallen because of the pandemic, uh, whether fairly or not. Uh, but they haven't, they, they haven't, you know, become upside down. Uh, and he's still relatively robust. And if he can make it through the session and the pandemic starts to ebb, I think that's a real danger sign for whatever Republican wants to run, run against these. Just like there are a lot of names being floated out there. But again, Zach, they don't have a candidate. They don't have a clear, strong candidate. And and you see now what happens when a bench gets decimated through three cycles of losing. You really don't have anybody. I, I still think that if Adam Laxhulk, runs for the U.S. Senate, as many people expect him to do now, Uh, he is likely to win a primary against anyone who runs. And I think he is a fundamentally weaker candidate than he was when he ran against Steve Sisolak uh, and lost. Uh, The question is who runs for governor if Laxalt doesn't? And there's a long list of names, but who's going to get through a primary uh, and and will there be damage inflicted from that primary? And there's no more powerful position in any state than governor, but it's especially true in Nevada where the legislature is there for a blink of an eye every cycle and and the governor has so much power over the aforementioned gaming industry. Cislac will be in a relatively strong position all other things being equal, which as you and I both know in politics, they rarely are. Overall, Zach, I just think that uh, the, the changing dynamic of the state, the way that the election is likely to be run is going to be mostly male Again, they're going to pass a bill in the legislature that will do that. The Democrats control all the levers of power in Carson City, both houses and the governor. So they will pass what they want. Essentially, uh, that is going to give an advantage to the Democrats, but there's brand problems, I think, for both parties in this state and elsewhere. You're seeing a rise of independent uh, registration. Part of that is because you have a a default uh, motor voter registration that goes to independents. But the real challenge for both parties is to figure out who these independents are, who are gonna make up very close probably to a third of the entire uh, registered electorate by November of 22. Whoever can figure out who they are and, 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 and appeal to them is probably going to win races where, where the candidates essentially and the money are, are, are equal. And I, I would give the advantage there to the Democrats because they just have the better talent, the better infrastructure set up. Uh, to carry that out.
0: Well, one certainty is the right way to pronounce the state's name. As someone who's worked in in Nevada politics for for a while, I've certainly been able to to adopt the appropriate, the correct uh, label. You see this when presidential candidates come in and quote-unquote mispronounce the state's name. Do
1: you think that actually matters? Probably not a lot. Uh, I mean, I think there are Nevadans who are very irritated when people mispronounce the name of the state. And there are also Nevadans who think that it should be pronounced Nevada because of the because of the Spanish uh, derivation, etc. But um, I mean, I don't think that people are going to vote against Candidate X, if they believe in what that candidate believes in, if the candidate says the name of the state wrong. But I do think it's a constant source of irritation to people who have been here a while, a sign of disrespect, perhaps, but really only at the margins, Zach. I don't think it's a decisive issue uh, in, in any race, as much as I'd like to think so.
0: It wasn't that long ago, a previous generation or maybe even a decade ago, a lot of states uh, had a John Ross and a lot of states had somebody who was identified as the, the top analyst in, in politics uh, in that state. And and increasingly, those folks have uh, been put out to pasture or that those, those those positions just don't exist anymore for a variety of reasons. So I want to dig into that a little bit. But first, yeah, Nevada's newspapers, as I've been familiar with them over the last couple of decades seem unusual and unique in that they're connected to very prominent figures and owners and they uh, even maybe more so than that take on the personality and the politics of those owners. So can you talk a bit about that and how that has shaped the media landscape in Nevada.
1: I'm still trying to get past the phrase, put out the pasture, as if I'm going to be put out the pasture from. But look, I'll, I'll get beyond that. To, to no, you're,
0: you're the exception. You are the exception. <laughs>
1: um, so it's interesting. I, the, the, the Las Vegas Review-Journal and Las Vegas Sun uh, have been the dominant papers in Las Vegas <clears throat> since I got here. The Sun is essentially, uh, for a lack of a better metaphor, started to set. And, 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 and really isn't much of a factor anymore. But when I, when I first started at the RJ, it was run by a guy named Don Reynolds, who was the head of the Don Ray Corporation. And, and uh, it was very conservative. It was a very conservative newspaper then. I had a very conservative editorial page. I, I remember my first like wake up call and how politics really works when a month before the election in 1986, uh, the, the, well before it would make sense to endorse anybody, maybe it was even six weeks, the RJ endorsed Jim Santini, who was Harry Reid's Republican opponent who had been anointed by Paul Laxalt. And I remember my good friend who was the editorial page editor um, uh, who has since passed away. He was he was an amazing guy saying, don't ask Ralston, I got to write this now. The call came from above. So that kind of stuff went on back then. And then Uh, The R.J. has remained a conservative paper, although it was not seen as a, quote unquote, biased paper, I think, in terms of how it covered things. But then after Sheldon Adelson uh, purchased the paper at the end of, of 2015, I think things changed. And I think people hoped for the best, but it was obvious that he wouldn't have overpaid so dramatically for that paper unless he wanted to use it. And so you had them. Uh, ha, have only conservative columnists essentially. You had them hire somebody who, uh, who was a longtime conservative columnist in the Bay Area, cover the White House. They you had them do all kinds of things that made uh, people suspicious. And meanwhile, the Sun, which is run by the Greenspun family, and, um, Brian Greenspun is a very prominent guy in politics, very close to Bill Clinton, and, and, and they covered, uh, uh politics in a very, very biased way for many years. The family was very hurt during the Great Recession uh, 12 years ago or so, and they lost a lot of their money, and, the, and, and Brian tried to make deals with the Review Journal, and they had already been in a joint operating agreement since 1985, and essentially, the RJs became the dominant force and really the only newspaper. And that was partly the reason, by the way, Zach, that I thought that the time was right to start a new news organization with the sun essentially disappearing with Adelson buying the RJ and and saying there is there is a place where you can still get something that is is you can count on for transparency and fairness and unbiased journalism and it was a gamble by the way to use the Vegas vernacular but it's turned out to be i think a pretty good gamble
0: we'll talk about that a bit mechanically you decide to uh, depart from the, con- the traditional conventional model and and, and start your own independent uh, news site, the, the Nevada Independent. Just mechanically, how, how do you even get started? What is, you, you make the decision, and then what happens the next day? How do you how do you get things moving?
1: It's a really good question, um, and, and it was somewhat of a leap of faith. I knew the first thing I had to do was um, target the best young journalists in the state to give us credibility, and I did that, uh, and, and I approached them, and, and all three of them were, were very, very interested right away. Um, And so then I I didn't feel it was right to offer them jobs uh, until I had two years of funding guarantee. And so I went and used the relationship I built uh, three decades of uh, being in this state and covering politics and business. And I went to people and asked for money. And eventually, and I still remember the time when I got the call where I got what I needed, which was a a few weeks after the election in 2016. And I, I got what I needed at the time, which was essentially $2 million committed, Uh, at the time for two years of funding. I thought it was a million a year. That's turned out not to be the case anymore, but uh, a million a year. And then I essentially offered them jobs. They took it. Then I went out and found somebody to build the website and be what we call a chief technical officer. Um, uh, And and I found him, by the way, through my brother, who's a big dot-com guy in Silicon Valley. Uh, And then uh, we just built from there. And and we launched the day uh, before the legislative session started in 2017 which I thought was a great time to launch and essentially the rest is history and it's uh, I I hate the I hate this phrase but we've been drinking from a fire hose ever since it's been the most all-consuming I I like to say it's been the most exhausting and most exhilarating ride of my life Uh, it's been so much fun but so hard to do and by the way I'm, I'm probably going into more than you want to know it almost didn't work um, uh, we 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 had enough money to make payroll uh, through the first uh, three years or so, but then when the pandemic hit, our, our sources of funding dried up. I had to I, I, I was I was not sure we'd be able to keep going. I had to cut the staff salaries. Uh, by a quarter, I didn't take a salary for months, and I essentially went out there and uh, went to a couple of our major donors and asked for help, but more, I went out and was very honest about what had happened, and I asked our readers to, to, to help us, and they did, not dozens uh, but hundreds upon hundreds of readers giving us relatively small amounts, but it added up. And then we were able to, to come back and get some grants. And I'm happy to say, Zach, that uh, as I talked to you today, uh, uh, we are in the best financial shape we have ever been in. We have a significant amount of money in the bank. Uh, we've just gotten another big foundation grant, and I'm hoping for another one uh, very soon. But the work uh, has has really justified uh, uh, what, what we have done. I I am so proud of these reporters. We have expanded. We have, as I said, 14 full time employees. Uh, now we have someone in D.C. Uh, who has been great. Uh, who is now a full time employee, and I've expanded the staff. And uh, I I I couldn't be more optimistic about about, about the future. But it it, it has been a, a a very tough goal, and it. I didn't think that I could be as good of a salesman as I was in that. But I I, I like to say to people that the one quality I think I had as a journalist, especially covering politics, that has helped me in this new job is just being shameless and not not afraid to ask the question. And in this case, the question is, will you give me money? The same thing as reporting in some sense, building relationships, building trust uh, with people to get them to give you money. Um, But it has been incredibly gratifying in case anybody listening cares. What we do that very few news organizations do is we list every donation on the site. You give us $5, you'll be listed. You give us $500,000, you'll be listed. And so you can search our donors, we're very transparent, and, and uh, it's, just, it's a great feeling. I, 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 as you can tell, me, I'm a real evangelist for the indie, for the cause of nonprofit journalism. I really believe it's the future of our business. Unless you know a billionaire like uh, Jeff Bezos or uh, 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 the late Sheldon Adelson, it's difficult to make it go. Um, and I really think this is the model that's going to be sustainable for the future in our business.
0: Yeah, I mean, a real success story in, in, in an industry that hasn't had uh, as many as it used right. to. Uh, has this experience of having to uh, at least figuratively go hat in hand and raise money has that made you think about some of the politicians you cover a little differently, perhaps sympathetic uh, a feel to some of the politicians who maybe uh, previously you would have been a little bit more cynical about their fundraising efforts?
1: It's a great question, Zach, and the answer is certainly yes. And I've said that uh, to more than one politician since uh, I started doing this. It's a humbling experience. As many of you know, some politicians are different. They they love it. They 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 take to it. They're they're not afraid uh, to do it, and it's just part of who they are. But I don't think most people are that way. And I certainly didn't come from that kind of background at all. But yeah, going sometimes to strangers or people that you don't know that well and asking for relatively large sums of money. uh, Yeah, it does give me more respect, more sympathy uh, for, for politicians than maybe previously I had had. Do I not have the reputation of being a sympathetic guy, Zach?
0: Extremely sympathetic. Well, <laughs> you know, other other than the other than the money front, which of course is, is is the big side of it, but other than the money and the funding and the financing, what has surprised you the most about starting your new site, running your own new site, and now, as you mentioned, I believe fourteen employees in multiple cities? What surprised you of being the boss?
1: To some extent, uh, what's what surprised me the most is how rewarding it can be to be the leader of an organization in which you create a culture, uh, which I really think that I have uh, uh, at at the end of collaboration, where these reporters know that they can say to me, we don't think we're doing this right, let's try another way, without fear of me, you know, invoking that this isn't a democracy. Uh, It's it's the work in creating a culture uh, of collaboration. And I got to knock on wood again, Zach, All of our reporters uh, uh, who I hired originally are still with us. And as you know, some of them are national quality, if not all of them are national quality uh, reporters, but they've stayed because of the opportunities I think they have at the Indy to do a different kind of journalism. It it is very gratifying uh, to to, to have fostered that and to to mentor young, talented journalists uh, in, in that way. And so... Um, as hard as the last year has been because of the of, of the issues uh, that we had, it 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 feels good to have done this essentially for others. I mean, I'm responsible now. Before, I was just responsible for myself and paying my own mortgage and, and 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 all the rest of it. Now, I'm responsible for a lot of other people. I never forget that, and I'm very cognizant of it. But I'm also really proud that they feel that they're in a place where where their leader values them above anything else. And that's, that's not something I thought I would necessarily be good at or have the patience for, uh, by the way, because I've not always been the most patient person in many ways, but you have to have patience. Uh, and you have to realize that uh, people's foible have foibles, and uh, along with their strong points, and you got you got to navigate through that. But it's been an amazing learning experience. But but as I keep saying, just very very rewarding doing what we're doing.
0: Now. Yeah, and, and one thing that I enjoy about the independent, of course, it has high quality you know daily news coverage. But on top of that, some really in depth, long form explainers of very complicated. Uh, issues. I mean it, it, it's, it's, it's even more so uh, it, it's in, in my mind it's even uh, ha- has more bells and whistles than a traditional uh, news outlet because you have people doing a lot of different things in addition to do- doing the daily feeding the beast of the news of the news cycle. Uh, you talked a little bit about your experience on television and having different iterations of your own television programs. How would you describe the John Rawson style when it comes to, to grilling politicians on television?
1: So this is, a, this is actually really interesting. Uh, when I went to the grad school at, at Michigan for, for journalism, there was a broadcast part of it and we had to take some broadcast courses. I had no interest in it. And I had the classic, as I uh, emerged from Michigan and became a print journalist, the classic arrogance about uh, broadcast journalism. Uh, it's soft, it's fluffy. They, they're, they're not they're not as serious journalists. Then I started getting, getting invited on TV to do analysis or appear on panel discussions. And I started realizing uh, the, the, how difficult it could be, and then when I eventually um, uh, was asked to do my own show, and I said, "You know, this will be fun." What I didn't realize is that some of the some of the innate talent or skills that I had developed were perfect uh, for this, in the sense that I was willing to prepare as much as possible for every show, which is the key to a good TV interview. In addition to being able to think quickly. Uh, on my feet, I am so frustrated watching most TV interviewers. And it was at the time is that people go in with a list of questions, and and then they ask them, and they don't listen to the answers, and they don't re- they don't either realize that they're just getting spin, or they don't realize that someone just said something that you should pivot off of. And so I, I just realized that I was suddenly an element where I could thrive to have someone sitting there for. 22 minutes and 30 seconds, or whatever the actual time was uh, of, 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 of the show. And they were captive. They couldn't hang up the phone on you as they, as they could with a print interview, right? They, they couldn't walk away from you in a coffee shop. They were there. Of course, I was always sorry that someone didn't rip their microphone off and walk off that. I think that would have been a great TV moment. Um, but seriously, um, it, it was just, I think I got the reputation of being very well prepared as knowing the subject as well. Not every show, of course but uh, as well as the person I was interviewing. So they were not able to spin me. And I would often let politicians get their talking points out in the answer to the first question and say very bluntly to them and to the audience, of course, okay, you've gotten your talking points out. Now let's get to the heart of some of the things uh, that you said. And so I think there was a sense watching my show that you never knew what was going to happen. You know, what, what someone might say what, what might piss Walston off and he was going to really bore in and, and, and that kind of thing. And you just don't see that that often on TV. You really don't. There was a certain, and I, believe me, I was not, I, I, I don't think I was often a jerk to people, but if I needed to be, I was willing to be. And that's more difficult for people to do when you want people to come back on the show, when you when, when, when you know people are watching. And so there's all kinds of different techniques. And I had a great mentor in, in, in the TV business by the name of Bob Stodall, uh, who is now um, the chairman of the Indie Board is, uh, and is the best journalist I, I've, I've I've ever known. And he taught me a lot. He actually fired me from the CBS affiliate when I was doing analysis because I wasn't good enough and then uh, eventually uh, became my boss again when I had a show. And I I love doing it, Zach. I did it for 15 and a half years through different iterations of the show, but I didn't really realize it until uh, the last show ended, but I was burnt out. To do five shows a week, which is what I was doing, five shows a week for 15, 16 years, um, uh, it was a lot. And I was ready to do something different. I didn't realize it uh, at, at the time, but it was a blessing in disguise when I was let go from the last one. The business of television is absolutely brutal. You, you are just a commodity uh, to them. And, uh, you know, it. it for, for instance, um, when uh, I was on the NBC affiliate here, At one time, and that NBC affiliate, after um, uh, the owner died, was purchased by Sinclair, and I knew it was—you know—it was just a matter of time. Sinclair was not going to want to keep a show like mine on, and sure enough, two months later, it it was over. But and and there there is there was no emotion. There was was no loyalty. Uh, I'm not just talking about me, by the way. I'm talking about longtime anchors who were let go. I saw it happen many times, really quality journalists whose worth uh, was not recognized. I mean, if you've seen the movie Broadcast News, it captured that really, really well in terms of what is valued and what is not. That's not to say that I didn't meet great reporters and great managers and and great producers in my work in TV. I've worked with amazing people uh, in, in TV, but the business of TV is 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 really really brutal but one thing i really think served me well and what i learned about TV is what people do prize is authenticity and i'm the sa- i was the same way on that show that i am with you on the podcast or i would be talking to somebody about politics at the and par- people people appreciate that you know, people used to email me, and the one thing that I loved hearing the most was you asked the questions that I would have asked if I was there without drawing too much attention to myself. Sometimes you have to do that in a way you ask questions. People valued authenticity. When I started getting asked to be on MSNBC, and when I was, by the way, something happened that I never thought would I was asked the first time to go on Meet the Press years ago. And I've now been on, I think, five times. And it's heavy stuff. It really is. But I'm just myself. I don't try to prepare lines or, or, you know, I prepare for the subjects I think I might be asked about. But people prize authenticity on TV. And they people are smarter than you think. They can tell when someone's being phony or it's set up or prepared or it's spin. And so um, I don't think I could be any other way. I'm not really bragging about this. It's how I am. But it served me well.
0: And you know the Nevada Independent has been groundbreaking in its uh, nonprofit journalism. You, you've done some video content. I know there's been election night content. Do you would you foresee you know moving a little bit more into sort of some of the n- nonprofit television or streaming?
1: We've talked about video a lot at, at, at the Indy, and as you probably know, video on the internet is still kind of a weird thing. People are willing to watch relatively short videos, but not so much longer videos yet depending on the platform and and, and the subject uh, matter. Uh, we have had streaming election coverage, as you mentioned, uh, for a few years now, and we get a decent number of viewers. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm not talking about a million viewers, even hundreds of thousands, even sometimes tens of thousands, but enough people where, People want to know the results. They know what we present. There's not a lot of fluff. I know know what people want to know on election night, which is they want the numbers, and they want to know where the numbers are coming from, and they want to know who's winning, who's who's going to win. And so that's been good. We do events that are streamed, uh, especially during the pandemic. We've had to do it by streaming. We stream our events anyhow. But we we hired a multimedia editor. That's one of the hires I've made since the initial core, and he is done a great job with our podcast I and mean, starting to come up with good ideas for uh, many documentaries. And uh, we've, we've done a few things with video, but, it's, it's problematic to me how much you can do on video and what the right balance is. We, we we have we have inserted little videos, explainers, as you mentioned, when we explain how a bill becomes law, for lack of a better explanation, we've done videos too, which have gotten decent viewership, but not overwhelming, right? And so it's difficult to know what the balance is. So we're, I'd say we're still learning on that, like I think a lot of sites are.
0: We've talked a bit about the Nevada Independent as an example. Just your status as a, the signature voice of Nevada politics is really very unique in the political sphere. This is a question I borrowed from the uh, economist Tyler Cowan, but he might ask about the, the John Ralston production function, which would be there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people with good experience in journalism, people who work hard. But what, John, what's made you different? What do you think is unique about you that you've been able to be successful in what you've done?
1: I do think that um, one thing that cannot be discounted uh, is is just being relentless and having a work ethic where you're willing to work crazy hours, be totally dedicated and immersed and passionate about what you do. I think there's very few people who would be willing to put in the time. And and what I learned early on in covering politics, Zach, is that doesn't mean you go to a legislative meeting or you go to a county commission meeting and write it up. you got to go meet with people after hours. you got to be willing to meet with people that you might not want to meet with and have drinks with them and develop relationships. And it, it is a tremendous amount of work. And I think, obviously, I've benefited from being in a small state. A relatively small state where the power structure has remained relatively intact in the way it works. There have been some changes, but through my the dint of my personality, more than my reporting skills or writing skills and my uh, work ethic, that, that I've been able to carve out this niche, being the guy for Nevada politics. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard work. I don't, I don't think anybody uh, should miss should miss that. But it's it's been it's been Listen, I tell my, my son who is 25 years old now and still doesn't know what he wants to do. The thing, and, and, and you get this, I think, because I think you probably feel this way about what you do. You want to wake up in the morning and, and believe you're doing the thing that you were born to do, that you love. Uh, you know, so many people wake up every day, Zach, and they going to work is, is drudgery. And, and you want to just have a passion for it. You want to love what you do. And and I have loved covering politics since the day I was put on the beat in August of 1986. And now I love running a news organization more than anything uh, that 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 I that I have ever done. Uh, I hope I still have this energy 15, 20 years from now when I'm much older. I may not, but I can't imagine retiring. I I, I just love what I do. And so if there's something if I don't know if there's anything unique about anything unique about everybody, but my passion for this has been unabated for 35 years. And 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 I think I think that I think that really means some. Coming from a small state, and being seen as the voice of politics in that state is not something uh, that I got because I have a louder voice than anybody else, or I'm more talented necessarily than anybody else. But I've worked harder than anybody else, and I love it more than anybody else.
0: Well, let's end on a couple of recommendations. First, I know you're a bit of a movie buff. What is a, um, what is a movie, you know, it can be something recent or older, something maybe a little off the beaten path that is a favorite of yours that you would recommend people go seek out?
1: Wow. I mean, there's so, there's so many, I, I actually once thought I was going to become, before I thought I was going to become a sports writer. I thought I was going to become a movie reviewer. When I was in high school, I, and my old Apple II that my dad had, I had printed out like 1500 mini uh, movie reviews. And I, I've, I've always loved movies. Uh, one movie that I would recommend that a, a lot of people probably haven't seen, but it's up for a couple of Oscars this year is a movie called another round. It's a Dutch movie. Uh, And it's it's definitely a really good ensemble acting slice of life about four high school teachers who are kind of bored with their lives. And one of them comes across a study that shows that people have actually less blood alcohol level than they're supposed to. And you should get it up to 0.5 every day. And so they start doing that and how it changes their lives. It's a fascinating, obscure movie, but uh, it's the one that comes to me off the top of my head.
0: And certainly I couldn't talk with you as an evangelist for all things Nevada, all things Las Vegas. If people find themselves in Vegas for for, for a couple days, for a long weekend, if they bounce up to Reno, what's one or two things that they should make sure to do that maybe are not the normal Vegas uh, weekend uh, tourist traps?
1: First of all, let me just say, um, I'm going to tell you two things in Vegas. One is a restaurant that nobody's ever heard of and, and the other is a tourist attraction if I could do that there's so many great restaurants on the strip uh, Zach now a, 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 as you know but one that's off the strip that, that's not far from the strip that everybody should go to is a restaurant called Ferraro's it's the best Italian meal that you will ever have outside of Italy so I highly recommend that and if you are all love the outdoors you may have heard something about Red Rock Canyon you should drive out there it's not that far from town. You can drive around the loop, you can, uh, which is about 13 miles, or you can go on any number of hikes. It's Absolutely gorgeous. If you're here in the middle of summer, bring pl- plenty of water, but, but visit Red Rock Canyon. As far as Northern Nevada goes, I didn't know about this when I moved here. A lot of people who live in Vegas have still never been there, but go to Lake Tahoe. It is literally one of the most beautiful places in the world. It is a beautiful alpine lake. There are, some, there are great places to eat. There are, if you go in the winter, there are great places to ski. Go to Lake Tahoe. You'll never see a more beautiful place.
0: Well, John, always enjoy being able to connect with you to uh, talk politics and, and, and hear your, your insights and experiences. So, this is a lot of fun for me. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Zach, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.